All right, the rest of us, we're going to be continuing in The Great Escape in the book of Exodus. Um, this has just been a wonderful study. And if you guys will bear with me today, I'm going to do my very best to impart to you what I believe God's given us um, this week. This is a powerful portion of Scripture. There's a lot in there. So I need you to listen to the best of your ability. Try to stay awake, Brother Eric. Stay awake. Stay with me. You can do it. Um, but uh, this, is, this, is, this is good. If the Lord, as long as I don't mess it up, we'll, we'll have a great day today. Um, last week in our message, The Way of His Steps, we examined the uh, remaining civil guidelines that Moses, um, the appointed judges, received, okay? As well as those designated toward the Israelites, towards their worship. Um, we saw how the Lord, through the guidelines of the law, kind of directed the people towards godliness. That's what's His goal. And then we saw how Jesus Christ is the mirror or the model for us to direct our own holiness. This morning, we're going to travel with Moses back up onto the mountain. So we're going to go back to Mount Sinai. Here we go. And what we're going to do is we're going to see here where he meets with God yet again to receive further instructions for the Israelites. And today we're going to read the message is called A Promise of Obedience. We're going to be in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 18. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come today just thanking you for your goodness. Thank you for your word, uh, God. The more we study it, the more we realize, uh, Lord, we don't know. And Lord, how incredibly deep and amazingly intricate the Word of God is. Thank you, Lord, for the living Word. Thank you, Lord, for the Spirit that dwells within us that helps us to discern and understand it. And Lord, I pray that you speak to us today. Lord, I just know that this week I have prayed, and God asked you to speak to me, and I believe that you have. And I would ask that today, Lord, you would speak through me, uh, not, as a, not as a human being, but Lord, nothing more as a vessel that you might speak. And Lord, I pray that you help me to have ears to hear. Help us all to have ears to hear, that we might not just be hearers of the Word, but doers. Help us to apply what we hear, that we might be changed. In Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 24, uh, verse number one, it says, And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. So outside, interestingly enough, outside of Aaron and Moses, uh, there's no one else that God's ever called by name, except we now see that he now calls Nadab and Abihu, along with the 70 others, to come and worship. Okay? In Exodus 28, we're going to see that uh, Nadab and Abihu, along with Aaron's sons, we're going to see the establishment of the priest class, and these priests will be the ones that will minister to God. Aaron's oldest sons will also appear, unfortunately, in Leviticus chapter number 10. This is an unfortunate instance, and what happens here is they're actually going to blaspheme God, and they're going to face this consequences of their dis disobedience. We're going to jump over there just to look at this a little jump into the future. Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. Those, these are the two oldest brothers, uh, the oldest sons of, of Aaron. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not to do. When it talks about strange fire, it's saying they're taking fire that was not from the altar. They were taking just random fire and they were doing their own thing. And they were kind of doing things based upon the way they wanted to do it in their own way as opposed to following God's rules. And it says here, as they were commanded them not. So the same rebellion and pride that we see in the Israelites, in the people, Guess what? It's going to show up in the priests as well. And they're going to walk right out there. And we're going to look at the consequences. Here are the consequences. Verse number two. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. And they died. They died before the Lord. So the consequences are dire. What happens is God holds a higher accountability, right? If you're given greater responsibility, guess what? You're also given a higher level of accountability. It's the same thing. His whole thing is he wants to see them, this godly behavior. They're supposed to be setting the example to the people not stepping outside of those parameters. So the greater the responsibility, the greater the accountability. And Luke 12, verses 48 says this, 
But he that knew not, meaning someone who's ignorant, and did commit things worthy of stripes, they did something worthy of punishment, shall be beaten with few stripes. Because he didn't really necessarily understand what he was doing, he made a misstep. But look at this, the next part of the verse is, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. It's kind of like this, if you think about a comparison. Let's say if I had a pair of gloves, and I told you, look, I'm going out of town, would you watch this pair of gloves for me? And I leave town. Not that big a deal. If you lost the glove, not a big deal. But let's say I, lo I say, look, I'm going out of town. Would you watch my kid? Right? Is there a higher level of accountability for the gloves or for the child? Right? The more I entrust you with, the more the greater the accountability is. Right? And look at verse number two. It says, and Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. I want you to notice he keeps saying, come near. He says, come up, come near. Moses is set apart, right? He's set apart from the Israelites. There's something special about him as he's allowed to come before God. The closeness that God affords to us, guess what? It's based upon. It's based upon our heart. It's based upon our walk with him. Moses has grown and developed. We know he wasn't a man of faith in the beginning, but he has become a man of great faith. And it's this development of this relationship with God that has been proven faithful. Hebrews 11 verses 24 through 29 talk about the faithfulness of Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he, was come, um, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ great, greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Verse number 27, by faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, but for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses kept his eyes on God. Verse number 28, through faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, sprinkling of blood, lest he that be destroyed, first, the firstborn should touch them. And then verse number 29, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying, do were drowned. So again, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Moses is a man of faith, and because of that faith that he has, guess what? He has access to God that no one else seems to, right? As children of God, guess what? The closeness of our relationship. It's determined by us. It's not determined by God. God wants a relationship with all of us. He wants closeness with all of us. Imagine this, and we always, we've talked about this in the past, how God in, in creation has shown us a picture of himself in the sun and the moon, right? The sun being a picture of the sun, S-O-N. This sun shines into the light of the, dark, of the darkness of this world, which we know we're in a spiritual dark because when Jesus left the earth, he said, I, he said, I am the light of the world. But when he left, guess what? Darkness fell. And you and I are a picture of the moon is a, is a picture of us. And so the sun and the moon, the sun reflects onto the moon and the moon reflects into the darkness. But the sun is always giving the same amount of light no matter what time of day it is. Whether you're in a spiritual day or you're in a spiritual night, the sun is not let up. It's not like it turns off when you're not receiving light. The sun is always giving. The same, as the same love that God has for us in the beginning of our relationship with him is exactly the same as it is now. When we fail, when we fall, when we get, we get ourselves trapped in sin or we get distracted, guess what? It doesn't change God's love. It's exactly the same. The same amount of light, the same amount of love is pouring out on us. The problem is we cannot receive it because we've got things between us and God. So the relationship between us and the Lord is not determined upon Him. It's determined upon us. We're the ones that waver in our walk. And God's saying, look, He's consistent. James 1.17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of light in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He is consistent. He is consistent. Verse number three. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice, listen to this, and said, 
all the words which the Lord hath said will we do. Man, big fat promise, man. We will do it, man. We're in. So all the civil statutes, all the things that we've just heard, right? All the things that we've been studying for the last few weeks, all these issues and all the retaliation God's going to have towards sinful behavior is read to them and they accept it wholeheartedly, man. We're in. We're in. Listen to the level of commitment. It's basically saying, look, dude, sounds good. We got it. We're in. Now, I don't know about you guys, but what I find is the fact that things, when they're on a theoretical basis, they're easy to accept them when you're not actually applying them. When you hear about it, right, you're like, okay. And I thought about it like this. It's kind of like if you were on a, on a, on a board in your neighborhood, and you were like, going to say, well, let's take a vote about what we think the speed limit should be in the neighborhood. There's kids running around, and people give their votes and stuff like that, and they say, how about six miles an hour? And you go, sounds good, six miles an hour. You vote on it, it's approved. But then you find yourself driving through your neighborhood at six miles an hour. <laughs> You're not going, man, this was a great idea. You're going, dude, it's going to take me 20 minutes to get out of the neighborhood. This is ridiculous. So when it comes to application, when it starts to impede into our life, it becomes more difficult. So in theory, it sounds good, but application is a different story. And that's what's happening here. They're going, man, it sounds awesome. Let's do it. We're all in, but they've not had a chance to actually put it into practice. So the theory here is good to them, but not the reality. Verse number four. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the, hill, under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's time now to make these laws official. It's time to ratify these things. He builds an altar and it's going to be consecrated unto God. The reason why it's important that it's written down, right? Because understand, there's oral laws, things that are passed down by man, but we want to make sure that it's accurate, right? So God wants to make certain that it's not going to be changed by the recollection of a human being. It's not going to be altered by someone's perception or someone's embellishment, right? Who knows people that embellish stories? <laughs> right, right, we know that happens. So human beings, God knows that. So that's why it's written down. Habakkuk 2.2 says this, and the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain unto tables that he may run that readeth it. God's saying, look, if people are going to apply what you're, they're going to read, I want to make sure that they know accurately what it is that I said, not what it is that you say. The written word, right, of God that we hold today. Guess what? This Bible is the basis of all truth. It is what is all founded upon. The reason why it's important to write it down is bottom line is we cannot allow the recollection of humanity to get involved. Why do you think that God used men to spoke to them through the Holy Spirit of God to pen the Bible? to give us his accurate assessment, his accurate word, so that we could know him. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 through 21 says this, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. What that means is you're not supposed to read the Bible and go, well, you know what I think that means? Fits this. That's why we have false religion, right? People go, wow, that sounds like it should be this. And they just go off on their own merry way and they start telling other people and guess what? They are told, they don't look it up for themselves. They distrust what they're told. You and I are not supposed to privately interpret the Bible. We're supposed to use the Bible to prove the Bible, right? Listen to what Luke said of the Bereans. This is a people in Acts 17, 11. There were more noble, it says they, these were more noble than those in, Thess in Thess Thessalonica, thank you, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, right? And it says, and searching the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. He writes to the Bereans and he says, look, they're more, they're more uh, favorable in the fact they're more noble because they didn't just take what they were told and trust it to be true. They actually went back to the scripture and they confirmed that it was real, right? These people are more noble. They're not just trusting, they're searching the word. And it says, searching the scriptures daily, 
whether those things were so. 1 Corinthians 2.13 says this, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but with the, which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. That means if you want to understand what something says in the Bible, instead of going to a commentary when someone gives you their opinion, why not look up a reference that cross-references that? That's why the Bible's written the way it is. That's why the Old Testament and the New Testament work together. The New Testament, guess what? Those principles are taught. The Old Testament is a picture book that matches it. Right? Every time you find a principle that's taught in the New Testament, guess what? You can go back, back and find a story and an, and an accurate uh, assessment of it, and you can match the two together and see how it actually functions. The Bible is designed to work that way to support itself. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake it as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Right? It couldn't be left up to the recollection of humanity because it would be imperfect. And also, guess what? God promises that he's going to preserve it. And he has for thousands of years. God's preserved the word of God. The same word that's been around for all this time. Guess what? We still hold it in our hands. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says this. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. <laughs> Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7 says this. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth. Purified seven times. That means perfect and pure. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever, right? In our King James Bible, guess what? You hold the preserved word of God and words of God. The beautiful thing about this Bible is the fact that you can take the individual words and you can cross-reference and pull things together that you would never see in any other scripture. It is absolutely amazing what God has done in his word. Verse 5 says this, And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. So in making this sacrifice, what they're doing is they're recognizing their sin. They're owning the fact that, look, there are issues with us. They're making these offerings in recognition of it. And also, it's interesting that it's these young men are sent to do it. Because understand, there aren't any priests yet. That doesn't happen until 28. So these men are sort of working as surrogates. They're filling in to take that role of making this established, uh, the establishment of these sacrifices. Verse 6, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled it on the altar. We're going to see in the next few chapters as we start to go, we're going to look at the development of the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to look at the development of the temple and the tabernacle. We're going to look at all those things. But this is in pre before that happens, they don't have those things yet. So they're going to use this, this temple that, that, or this uh, altar that Moses has just built. And it says here, verse number seven, and he took the blood of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. So now he takes everything he's written down. He's made sure that it's accurate. And he's going to retell them exactly what it is that God told them in regards to those laws that we've been reading. And they said, check this out, all that the Lord hath said will we do. And they add on this time, and be obedient. Not only will we do it, but we're promising. We're going to do it, man. We're going to be obedient to do this thing, right? When the word of God is read, it's either received or rejected, right? This can be on a personal level, but guess what? It can also be on a corporate level as well, right? We see in the reaction of the Israelites, the optimal response to Scripture, man. Not only do they make a vow that they're going to do it, but they say, man, we will be obedient. We promise to willingly follow and do exactly what we're told. We will be obedient, right? Listen to that, a promise of obedience. Man, if this could be the response of every Christian, we heard the word of God, we read the word of God and go, I'll do it. I'm doing it. And not only will I do it, but I'm going to be obedient to do it. Lord, you can count on me. I'm in, right? That's where they are. How many of us think sometimes when we read something, we're like, man, I'm in. But then it comes to application, we're like, yeah, wow. Not even little white lies, they're not good, they're, they're bad, right? Uh, can't take a little something, come on, right? 
right? It, the applications where it becomes difficult. In theory, it all sounds good, but when it comes to application, it's a little different. Just imagine, right? If on a personal level, if this was the truth for us, and we responded this way, and we truly applied it, and we truly were obedient to God, imagine what it would do to our personal lives. It would be earth-shatteringly different. So much different. And then also consider what it would impact this world like. Because guess what? Our lives are not just about us. Because we, we spill over into other people's lives. And if that love that's in you and that relationship with God is so pure and perfect and you're obedient and you're living that life, your life's going to spill into the lives of other people. And guess what? This world's going to be changed for the better. But application is the difficult thing. In theory, it all sounds good. Application's a different story. But understand, right? They make this promise. In Exodus 32, we know that things are going to change. Within 40 days, these very same people who have made this promise of not only a vow to do, but also a promise of obedience, right? They're going to be celebrating a golden calf. They're going to be dancing around in an orgy while Moses is up on top of the mountain. We know that's what's going to happen, right? We can see here that professing a truth is a lot easier than possessing a truth. It's easy to say, man. We can run our mouths all day long. Oh, man, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. You know what? And the next thing, a temptation comes, and we're like, well, I really like that too. And we get into this struggle. If we really love Jesus and he's number one, man, there should not be any contest of things in this world. They should never even come close. But unfortunately, daily, we struggle. Sometimes getting out of bed because sleeping feels good, man. Who loves to sleep? Amen. Telling you, man. <laughs> Sometimes, man, the bed is just amazing on a cold, rainy day. And you know you're supposed to get up and you're like, but, oh, man. Because a little bit of breeze touches your neck and you're like, mm, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no. Oh, 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 just a few more minutes. Just a few, right? And we're going, man, but God's calling me to be in his word. I know I only have a certain amount of time to be in the word. I should be downstairs reading it right now. I can get a cup of coffee, sit down and let God speak to my heart. But, man, this bed feels good. Where's our priority? Where does he fall? Applications where it becomes difficult to apply. Professions are superficial and based upon the optimistic view that we're not going to face adversity. Possessions are deep and they don't waver in the face of adversity or challenge, right? Are we professors or possessors, right? When adversity strikes, you'll find out which one you are, right? If we're going to stand on the word of God, it does not matter what the world throws at us. We will fall in line with him. But if we fall into our flesh, guess what? We turn into a professor. That's somebody, somebody called me to look like a professor with this bow tie on, but not that type of professor. Bottom line is, we're not, it's a matter of us looking within ourselves and recognize the fact that, you know what? Life's going to be difficult. If we're, if we're a professor of faith, we're going to have a really hard time. If we're a possessor of faith, we can go through almost anything we could possibly imagine with the peace of God. Verse 8. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Why is the blood important? Why is that relevant, right? And Leviticus 17.11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that make an atonement for the soul. The covenant is finalized in, with the sacrificial blood, in the sight of God and men. And it's not a coincidence. Notice this. The same timing and the same way this breaks down is exactly the same way in the covenant between us and God. Through salvation, right? First of all, what do we hear? He reads the word. The word of God is read, right? We read the word. Someone tells us the word. Someone shares the truth of the word of God with us. It's read to us, right? Then we recognize the sacrifice for sin. 
and we see how it applies to our lives. Thirdly, we then receive the truth of God's word by faith. And then lastly, as he poured the blood, what does it happens? The blood's applied to our lives. The very same picture. Nothing happens in the Bible by coincidence. The more you understand this word, man, the more you realize how awesome God is. I, I implore you, learn this word, man. Verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and there, were, there, were, there, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone that would be blue. And as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Notice their focus is on his feet. You know why? Because when people come before God, what do they do? They fall down. They bow down before him. Verse 11, and upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand, and also they saw God and did eat and drink. And it's interesting why you think, why do they have a meal? Well, it's interesting because actually this supernatural appearance, right? God wants to have this personal connection with them, but also, guess what? When they're going to wrap, anytime you see a peace offerings made in the Bible, it's always going to be followed by a feast. There's always going to be a meal that clarifies and finalizes that covenant. Verse 12, and the Lord said unto Moses, come up to me into the mount and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments, which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. Now, this is really cool, man. As the Lord calls Moses back up to the mountain where he is, he adds an interesting phrase in here. He says, and be there. He doesn't just say come. He's not just concerned with what he's going to give him. He's not just concerned with what he's going to do or what he's going to receive. He's concerned with his presence. This is important, man. Before he gets to those details, notice the heart of God. He wants Moses to simply be in his presence, to just be there. Have you ever had someone in your life that you just wanted to be with them? Because of who, not because of what you were going to get. It had nothing to do with that. It was just simply the love that you had for them. It could be a grandparent, a child, a parent, who knows who it is, an aunt, an uncle, someone who you just wanted to be in their presence. They could just be in the room with you. And you feel comfort and love. That's what's going on here, man. I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you. And we think about that from our perspective, right? And it's about the identity of the person. It's not about anything else. It's just about who they are. But we flip that around and consider this. From a human perspective, we can understand it and go, yeah, I understand. You know, I love my wife. And just being in her presence, guess what? It, it gives me comfort. I don't, have to, I don't need anything from her. I just want to be with her. I just want to be with her. And if we think about it from a human perspective, then flip it around, man. Flip it around and think about how amazing it is that the God of the universe wants to be with us. Not to get anything from us. Not because of what we're going to do or what what we're going to receive, but just to be there. He says, just be there. And guess what? The presence is not affected by him. He wants to be with us. He desires that closeness. He's always giving. That sun is always pouring, always pouring, always pouring. We're the ones that go in and out of his presence. We're the ones that are unfaithful. That's why he calls adulterers and adulteresses. He says, look, as a spiritual level, you're adulterers and adulteresses. You're unfaithful to me. You're unfaithful to me. And you and I, we're unfaithful, man. We live in a church age where we're so filled with self and so filled with wanting what we want instead of what God wants. And we miss out on so many beautiful things. Because guess what he does? He just wants you to be there. Just be there. It's just such a beautiful picture. Zephaniah, listen to this. Listen to how God values us. Zephaniah 3.17 says this. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, 
He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. Listen to that. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. You see, we're special to God. We're God's supreme creation, man. He created us in his own image. Genesis 1.27 says, So created God, so created man, uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Body. Right? Body, soul, and spirit. We're a trinity just like God. There's nothing else on the earth that's a trinity like God. We're a body, we're a soul, and we're a spirit, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23, 5, 5, 23 says this, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uniquely formed. Uniquely formed by the loving hands of God. To do the works of God. Listen to this Ephesians 2.10. For we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Just having just come out of the, the spirit of the, or this, the season of Thanksgiving, man, the best way we can possibly show God our thanks is by living a life that's for him and not for us. Over the doors of this church, when you walk out, it says it's not about me, it's all about him. And that's the reality. And unfortunately, we live in a world that tells us it's all about us. But also in that verse 2.10, notice that part says that we should walk in them. It doesn't say that we will walk in them. It says that we should, meaning that there's part of it that's up to us, right? God created us for good works. He created us to change the world. He, changed, he created us to touch other people's lives. He created us for these good things. And he says that you should walk in them, but you have got to choose. God, serve God or serve self. That's the daily struggle. Verse 13. And Moses rose up and his minister, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. Notice Moses takes his right-hand man, Joshua, right? And Joshua's going to walk with him. He's going to climb the mountain with him. Moses is an old man. He's in his 80s at this point in time. And as he's climbing up here, Moses, Joshua's going with him. And guess what? In this Christian life, there are going to be supporters of you. There are going to be folks that are going to walk this road with you. They're going to help you when you're stumbling and you can't climb. Guess what? They'll help you along the way. But when it comes down to it, guess what? They will not go into the presence of God for you. You will do it on your own. And you'll have people that will support you, but guess what? Your Christian walk is your Christian walk. You may have a Christian brother or sister that is awesome, man, and they love the Lord, and they're in love with God, and they love the Word, and they speak truth into your life, and man, you're like, you're enriched by it. But in the end, their walk is not going to affect your walk with God because you need to take accountability for your own walk. That's why it's important we spend time individually I can study all week long. I can study 100 hours a week and pour into you. But guess what? If you're not pouring into yourself, you're not getting it, man. You're coming here. If you only come and receive this day, you're a baby in Christ. I am giving you milk. I'm feeding you. But you are not going to eat for yourself. The table is ready. The food is prepared. Yet you sit back with your hands in your pockets and you're starving all week long. Well, I can't wait till Sunday. Preacher's going to give me something good. Can't wait till Sunday. That's my job, I know. But at the same time, it's your job every day to work on your own personal relationship. This is key for us. Absolutely key. A relationship with God is a personal one. I think of the night I got saved, man. It wasn't about my wife. I mean, she was there with me. Yes, we got saved the same night. But in the end, it wasn't about her. It was about me. And I had to look within myself and see my lost condition. I had to recognize who it is I really was, not who I sold myself to be, not who I pretend to be, but who I really was. And when I did, man, I saw wretched, undone, sinful, dirty, ugly. 
I didn't deserve repentance. I didn't deserve salvation. Yet God loved me. And it was a personal relationship that was established because I just simply said, you know what, God? I need you, right? I need you. And that's what God wants us to do. Come humble, broken, and alone. And when we come with him like that, guess what he'll do? He will restore us and redeem us and build us up. And then guess what? He'll take, turn around and take our lives and use it to touch somebody else's. That's the most amazing thing in the world that God's willing to use us. Wow. Verse 14. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. He's basically saying, look, till I get back, Aaron and Hur, they're in charge. If anybody has any problems, bring it to them. The nation of Israel is assembled now at the foot of the mountain. Aaron and his sons, the 70 elders, are about halfway up the mountain. Joshua and Moses have gone up even further. And now Moses is going to go up alone the rest of the way to meet God. Verse 15. Moses went up on the mountain, and a cloud covered the mount, right? The cloud is symbolic, always symbolic. You find it in the Bible, it's always symbolic of God's presence, right? Imagine this scene, right? Joshua and Moses have walked up. There's this cloud resting on the mountain, and now Moses starts to climb off into it, and Joshua's watching, and he sees him disappear into this cloud, wondering, man, he's going in the presence of Almighty God. How amazing with that. Verse 16, And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. It's not a coincidence, guys. We see six, and we see that seventh, right? We see the Sabbath and the picture that God gave us in the Sabbath. What's happening is here is he's saying, look, on the seventh day, I want you to come be with me. Come commune with me. It's a picture of church. It's a picture of us coming together as a body, that on the seventh day, we would spend this time with the Lord. It's special to him. We see this thing mimicked in God. This, in verse number 17, And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. That's interesting that God adds that in. It's very, very, very telling. So the sight of the glory of the Lord. Now, if you go back into verse 16, it says, The glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai and the cloud. It was a cloud. So the sight of the glory of the Lord, the exact same thing, was like a devouring fire in the eyes of the children of Israel. So they're seeing the same thing but that doesn't look the same, right? Interesting, what Moses saw as a cloud which displayed the glory of God was seen by the children of Israel as a devouring fire. You think that's a coincidence, right? Think about this. That when God calls us home at the rapture, he's going to say, come up. And where are we supposed to meet God? In the, in the clouds. Isn't that interesting? The same verbiage, the same image, Right? Then think about this. Do you think it's a coincidence in Hebrews 12, 29? Guess what? God's described, says that God is a consuming fire unto those that will face his wrath. Those that are his children will be gathered in a cloud, and that's what they're going to see, a beautiful cloud. And the rest of the world, the lost world, they're going to see a devouring fire. The Bible says that God is storing up his wrath. All this time of mercy, man, the church age, Grace, mercy, grace, mercy, grace, mercy, grace, mercy. But there's coming a day when the wrath of God will come upon this earth. And if you're not a child of God, you will face that wrath. And it is real. Because guess what? God is a just God. Not because he wants to punish people. All this time, grace and mercy, grace and mercy, grace and mercy. Come to me, come to me, come to me. Whether our hearts with God or in rebellion against him will determine how we will see him manifested. Moses sees a welcoming cloud. Israelites see a devouring fire, right? What do we see when we come in the presence of God? 
right? Do we feel comforted and peace when we spend time in the Word, when we spend time in prayer? Or do we feel conviction and unrest? Same book, right? One person looks into it. Man, it's so sweet, so beautiful. I just love the Lord. It's so awesome to read this Word. Other people are like, you know what? I don't want to look in there because I'm afraid of what I'm going to find out, right? I don't want to see what it has for me, right? Completely different perspective, exactly the same book. It's not dependent upon God because guess what? He's always the same. Our perception is determined by our heart, right? They're either tied up, our heart's either tied up in the world and headed toward destruction or it's submitted to God and walking in him, with him in fellowship. Are we walking through the mist of God's cloud as we're seeking him? Or are we keeping our distance as we stand in fear of being in the presence of Almighty God? We've been there, all of us. If you've been a Christian for any point in time in your life, there are times when you're seeking Him, man. You're walking into the cloud excited to spend time with Him. And there's other times when you don't even want to think about it. It's easier to kind of hide our head in the sand, to live in the moment, and try to avoid what is it God's trying to do in our life. It's a completely... It's a frightening thing, but it's a reality for all of us. Verse 18, And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up unto the mount, and Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. What do we see when we look into his word, man? Welcoming cloud or devouring fire? Are we excited to hear from him? Are we afraid to hear from him? Right? The Israelites, when it came time for their, their vow, their promise of obedience, right? They said what they thought they should say. They wanted to appear godly. Yes, Lord, we will do it, man. Right? But we know within 40 days, their true intentions, the real desire of their hearts is going to manifest itself in a golden calf and a celebration of sin. Right? The thing we have to look at, guess what? It's not what you say that shows who you are. It's what you do. It's what you do. If you're a parent and you tell your children, don't do this, yet you do it, they know the truth. They could be three years old and they go, well, okay, I get it, right? We walk the walk for a purpose that we might reveal our true character. When we honestly examine our Christian lives and our commitment to Christ, guess what, man? We can see if we have a profession or a possession. Possession is what we need if you're living based upon a profession, if your salvation is based upon the fact that I prayed a prayer, it's my profession of faith. I got baptized in front of the church. It's a profession of faith. But your life reveals nothing different. You don't possess it. You professed it. You've got yourself convinced, but your life will reveal the truth. If you're constantly in adversity, if you're constantly dealing with sin, and if the same things that had an effect on you and drew you like it did before you got saved do the exact same thing after you're saved, guess what? You're fooling yourself because you're living based upon a profession. If you go back to a time and a day and you say, I know I prayed this day, this prayer at this time at this day, but there was not a change in your life, it's a profession. But buddy, let me tell you, when you see somebody who gets saved and it's a possession, their life changes. Their life changes, man, dramatically. I can think back to my life. I was not raised in church. I went to church my entire life. My first time in service was the day after I got saved. I'd never heard the gospel before. No one ever presented it to me, ever. I knew who God was only from, no joke, Charlie Brown. Remember Charlie Brown Christmas? 
They read, two, they read Luke 2.11. Linus reads Luke 2. That's the only time I'd ever heard the gospel story of who Jesus was, was on Linus. And I watched that every year. So I knew when I heard that, I was like, oh, man, I've heard that before. Oh, yeah, the guy with the blanket, right? It's amazing. But yet what happens is when God changes you, he changes you, man. When he saves you, he changes your heart. He redirects the way you are. And I went just a few days before playing beer pong with my neighbor to being in church the next day. And then within a week, going in there trying to tell them about Jesus. And they're going, what? What? Because I couldn't control it. It wasn't me. God changed my heart towards people. And it wasn't just about me anymore. When we got saved, the night we got saved, man, we were burdened for my brother, burdened for my sister, burdened, I don't have a sister, burdened for, <laughs> burdened, for, <laughs> burdened for her sister, burdened for family, man, immediately. Question after question after question, man, what about this and what about this and how do we share and what about this? We wanted to know, man. We wanted to grow in the Lord. We, wanted, we, we had a different heart. And that's the key. I'm not telling you your experience has to be like mine, but there needs to be a change. The Bible says you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of God, the one that created this universe, moves inside of your body and doesn't change you. Guess what? He didn't move in. Because when He comes in, He changes you. So we've got to check our hearts, man. Are we profession or possession? It's the key. It's absolutely key. Are we being real with God? Are we simply playing the game? Right? And we better figure this out way before we ever make that promise of obedience. Because you know what? There's a whole lot of people in this country that profess to be Christians. But their life shows no indication of it at all. At all. By their fruits ye shall know them. The fruit of their life reflects who they are. The fruit of our life should reflect who we are. We're going to have up days and down days, yes. But the good news is God's always the same. He loves you the same today as he does yesterday and the way he will tomorrow. And he loves every person that you ever see on this planet. He loves them just the same. He would have all men come to the knowledge of the truth. We have an opportunity to touch this world. We have an opportunity to use this life for his glory. Let's make sure we know who we really are before we ever make promise of obedience. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Uh, thank you for your word. Um, uh, for speaking to my heart. God, if no one else got anything out of this message, God, I know that you have spoken to me clearly. And uh, Lord, I pray that you just help us, uh, Lord, to check our own hearts. Lord, to, to make promises of obedience, Lord, that are real, not just in theory. The Lord will actually apply them. God, help us to live a life that, Lord, reflects the glory of God into the lives of others. Help us shine the light of Christ into the darkness of this place. And, Lord, help our lives, God, be a reflection of your goodness and your glory. God, as we enter this Christmas season, Lord, celebrating your birth, you were born to die, not to live. You were born to die for the sake of humanity because of our sin not yours. The Bible says you were made sin for us. God, your love is so far beyond what we can understand, but I would pray, God, that you just help us to look at who you are and to see it in the word. Help us to spend time with you every day, and God, speak to our hearts. Help us to be willing, Lord Jesus, to see the truth of who you are. With their heads bowed and with their eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor? I don't know that I have a relationship with God. I have a profession. I can think back to a day 
I can think back to a date. My mom and dad told me that I got saved when I was nine years old, and I believed it. But I can't tell you that my life's changed. If we look within ourselves and we realize that there's not a change, then we need to make a decision for him. Not a profession, but a possession. If you're here today, if you're online, if you're in the overflow, wherever you are, this is not a magic prayer. There's nothing ceremonial about it. It's nothing more than a broken heart, someone coming before God on their own, realizing their need of a Savior. And let me tell you this, Jesus Christ loves you right now more than you can possibly imagine. Possibly imagine. And he is pouring out his love to you right now, and he is calling you. The Bible says, no man cometh to God, but the Father draw him. And if the Father's drawing you right now, and he's telling you, look, I am lost, and I need a relationship with Christ, you can pray right now and receive the gift of God. It's not a magic prayer, like I said. It's the intention of your heart. And what will happen is God will come inside of you, and he will change your forever. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, it's nothing more than a prayer. I'm going to lead you in prayer. And understand, it's not the words that will do anything for you. It's your heart. God's speaking to your heart. And as you speak with your heart, God will hear you. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, repeat after me. Not the words, but with your heart. Speak in your heart and your mind. In your mind, if you want to receive Christ, repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I have failed on many levels of living for you. And I'm sorry. I come today with a broken heart. I recognize my lost condition and my need of a Savior, the Savior, my need of you. And I ask you right now, from the bottom of my heart, to come into my life to forgive me of my sins and to pay the price that I cannot pay. Lord, come into my life and save my soul. I love you. Thank you for loving me. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and have faith. Amen.